Yes, yes, hello, it's back. Welcome to the NTT20 podcast. This is the Monday pod where we look back at the weekend action from across the EFL. I am Ali Maxwell. On the line with me, George Ellick. For so many teams, this was their first league games in over six months. And for some, I dare say it would have felt like they could have done with a little more time since the end of last season. Either way, here we are. We've got plenty to break down. Uh, George, magnificent to hear you on BBC Radio 5 Live on Saturday, pre and post matches. What is that like as a Saturday afternoon working with Chappers and various others? What's the setup? Talk me through it. It's great. I love it. Um, it gives me, especially on a weekend where I'm moving house. So the <laughs> packing of boxes and stuff had to, um, you know, had to pause between the hours of kind of midday and 5.30 on a Saturday, which should always be the case, but it's hard to always, um, you know, make that work. But no, it's, it's great. I get to, you know, we speak um, on, normally on Friday about some of the, the key points pre-match. So what, what you know, what are they going to be um, and what we need to look at, look, you know, touch upon. And then, speak at about one o'clock to chappers running through them having some nice chat chappers is obviously brilliant he's not one of those presenters who just follows a script you know he's got his own opinions and got his own thoughts and stuff so it, it rarely follows exactly the way we think it's going to follow and normally a couple of curveballs thrown in there um like i got to, you know when jack harrison scored on uh, on saturday for leeds it was whilst i was doing my second bit on sports report and it came back to the studio and chappers went so george jack harrison you seen a lot of him which is quite fun so I got to talk about an, an EFL graduate. Uh, and then during the games, um, when it's not COVID time, I'm at a stadium watching a game uh, of which I, I basically see very little of for the second half because I'm busy beavering around the EFL looking for the main stories. But on Saturday, I was at home watching um, Gillette Soccer Saturday, watching Jeff and, and the new boys, um, kind of keeping on top of everything, seeing the goals as they go in. And then I send over my thoughts at five o'clock and then at half past five, we run through them. And it is just you know it's, it's as perfect as Saturday can be except for watching Yellows winning live basically <laughs> lovely well it's always a real buzz to to hear you on Sports Report and I dare say that is our biggest audience now when you're on uh, on Five Live on a Saturday afternoon I, I hate to think I dread to think how many millions of people are listening to you talk about the EFL it's such uh, good stuff and I'm glad that you're going to be really involved with that uh, this season I was in at Quest uh, just uh, as a producer rather than a pundit this week, but I'm on screen on Saturday with Dean Ashton. I can't wait to get cracking. Uh, and of course, we were on Sky on Friday night as well, which was good fun. We talked about three young players in the EFL, Max Bird, Ovi Ajaria and Perry and G. Uh, I noticed that quite early on in the Reading uh, Derby game, Ovi Ajaria crunched Max Bird uh, and helped set <laughs> up a chance for Lucas Schrauss. So that was a good start for the season uh, for one of the guys we spoke about. Anyway, let's talk about some football matches uh, look, the it's going to be a very similar formula this year on the Monday pod to to, to normal, not reinventing the wheel by any means. Uh, and just a reminder that on this opening weekend, everyone wants to hear us talk about their team. That's completely understandable, but we cannot do that in the time uh, that we have. So generally, we're going to park any draws that happen this weekend. Unless something crazy or crazy interesting happened, we're going to mainly talk about the... Uh, the games that ended with a winner and a loser. Uh, let's get cracking. I think it's fair to say there wasn't a ton of quality on show in many of the games across the EFL uh, on the weekend for the most part. From what I saw anyway, certainly in the championship, a lot of teams looking very rusty in that final third. Uh, and we saw a few errors at the back as well. In the championship, which is where we'll start, there was only one draw. 
and eight of the other games were decided by a single goal. So let's start with the three games which saw teams win relatively comfortably. Three 2-0 wins and probably all of them, George, for teams who weren't necessarily fancied heading into the weekend. Let's start with QPR 2, Nottingham Forest 0. What a start to life post Ebere Eze for QPR and Mark Warburton, who would have been thrilled to get one over uh, on his former team. Yeah, really impressive. Um, and the issues at Forest just seem to continue. Um, there seems to be some talk that Sabri Lamucci's immediate future at the club is already under strain, um, which isn't isn't really a surprise. It's something we alluded to in our pre-season prediction pods that Forest, I mean, it wouldn't have to take a particularly bad start for people to start talking about Lamucci's future, given the the fall apart at the back end of last season, and given the Forest owners. Um, his his history in terms of the way he deals with managers but um for qpr this is this is huge this is an example firstly of them keeping a clean sheet which didn't happen very often last season it's a sign that as you mentioned life after a barry Eze and jordan hugill is going to be okay lyndon dykes it may only be a penalty but he won the penalty and he put it away pretty convincingly as well so good to get the you know, the, uh, the the season off with a goal for him because he's going to need a few of them if they're going to be OK. Mm-hmm. And Ilias Chair, a player who I think everybody knows is going to have to step up now that Eze's gone. And he did that um, beyond just his his goal scoring um, day, which was a tap in to say, you know, he was very good. He was probably the best player on the pitch for, for QPR. Um, and yeah, great news for them. Um, it's easy to get caught up, I think, in the narratives here in two ways, both in terms of talking about um, surprises from last season. You know, in the first day of the season, you look at this as being QPR, a team who were lower mid-table against Forest, a side who missed out on the playoffs. But, you know, you have to put that to the back of your mind now and look at these teams on merit. But at the same time, it's important not to get too carried away after one result. Um, Ali, I know you weren't particularly keen on QPR's uh, chances this season, and it's hard to disagree with that. And one 2-0 victory over a side whose form, dating back to March, is, is very, very poor doesn't change too much no no you're absolutely right to say that my my sort of slogan that I've been repeating to myself throughout the weekend and this morning is comments not conclusions that's what I want to do on this podcast try desperately not to uh, pretend to draw large conclusions and rather just comment on the interesting things that happened as you say I think the headline here has to be for QPR the performance of their new centre-back Rob Dickey and their new number nine Lyndon Dykes because it's not just Ebere Eze that left but Jordan Hugel as well, who was a real focal point for them last season. Dykes coming in uh, and scoring on his debut, as you say, from the penalty spot. Very confident penalty, which will have been very pleasing to see. I'd like to be the first on record to call him Lyndon Levin Dykeski because uh, mm. he really looks like the all-round striker at this level. <laughs> I mean, remains to be seen. But Dickey, Im- imperious in the air by all accounts, dealt very well with Graben. For the most part, although Graben did miss quite a good chance. Uh, and Forrest, you know, they weren't horrendous, but they certainly weren't good enough. And there is that feeling, especially when a high-profile player like João Carvalho is bombed out the squad and looks to be leaving. A lot of onus now on Luke Freeman, who comes in, uh, having not played a lot of football, to be that creative force that they desperately need in order to improve as, a, as an attacking side. So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, Ornstein in his column today mentioning that uh, sources have told The Athletic Time is running out fast for Lamucci to turn things around. I know that it stretches over two seasons and it's a bit cheeky to do that with stats, uh, but Forrest haven't won any of their last eight matches. 
uh, obviously lost in uh, in the EFL Cup against Barnsley as well. So this Cardiff game uh, already feels like quite a big one. Forest need to make a statement there. But then again, so to, to, to Cardiff, George, one of the biggest shocks for me this weekend wasn't necessarily that Sheffield Wednesday played well, but how poorly Cardiff played in their 2-0 defeat to Sheffield Wednesday. But focusing on the side that won, four minutes into your new season, Izzy Brown with the assist, a, a brilliant through ball, which is exactly his MO. He's a wonderful creative player and a really good pickup for Sheffield Wednesday if they can keep him fit. Uh, and Windass, who they signed permanently as well, finishing with a plomb, as they say. Uh, that's, that's, that's how you start the season, where you really need every single point. And by all accounts, the midfield three of Bannon and Luongo uh, and Brown in front of them appeared to work pretty well. Um, Brown's uh, obviously Brown's very presence takes the creative burden off Bannon at times last season it was all on his very small shoulders um, but yeah it's a funny one isn't it 12 points a 12 point deduction 12 points to make up sounds like a lot nine points all of a sudden doesn't seem so many I mean Barnsley was seven points from safety with nine games to go when football returned in March and, and they obviously survived so nine points with 45 <coughs> games to go uh, a really positive weekend for Wednesday and a poor one for Cardiff. Yeah, you say there's no surprise to see Cardiff playing like this. And I know that they're not the top 20 party liners that were not putting any weight in the Carabao Cup performances last weekend. But this was a side who you know, had suffered playoff heartbreak fairly recently, um, who lost 3-0 against League One's Northampton, having put out a fairly decent side as well. So there's some evidence to suggest here that Cardiff have gone pretty quickly backwards on the back of what happened a couple of months ago in the playoffs. And in Neil Harris, you know, we alluded to it in the one to twenty fours. You've got a manager who, you know, it looks like it looked like last season was a great fit for Cardiff. But it did seem kind of remarkable that this guy who'd been at Millwall for about five years had, you know, scraped promotion with them once, but genuinely, generally, except for one very good run two seasons ago where he nearly got them into the playoffs. A similar run to the one Cardiff really went on to get there. It did seem quite bizarre that a change of scenery suddenly triggered this, turning this side into something much better. It's important not to get too caught up in this, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say, maybe Sheffield Wednesday being the victors here away from home was surprising, but Cardiff are certainly one of the teams, I guess in the same way as Nottingham Forest, but even coming into this game, it did feel like there was a vulnerability around them. Not that that's going to necessarily mean anything long term, but, but for Sheffield Wednesday to already close that gap from 12 to 9 is massive. It'll give them huge belief that they can do it. Any issues here? I think kind of similar to, to Bolton last season where the, the start was just so bad that it became very clear very early on that there was absolutely no way they were going to get out of this mess and the whole season was just a write-off. To get this result now, when you look through their team, I mean, Adam Reach didn't even start because you know, flavour of the month, Matt Penny starts on the left-hand side. But, uh, you know, a forward unit of kind of Windass, Rhodes, Brown and Harris is very strong. Mm. When you've got Bannon's passing from deep and Luongo's legs in the middle, you know, there, there isn't a great amount of depth below that. But in terms of a starting 11, it's fairly decent. So, uh, and we know with Monk, often it can start very well indeed. It may not last the whole season, but if they can take this form onwards going through, then it, you know they're going to close that gap very, very quickly indeed. Another team whose starting 11 I looked at and, in, and the shape that they were set up uh, by their manager and I sort of thought to myself yeah you know what I, I think I quite like this I think it works quite well was was Reading uh, and maybe that's a bit revisionist given that they had a very eye-catching 2-0 win over Derby but you know we, we wanted to see how Velkio Paunovic would set this side up uh, we, we we came to expect under Mark Bowen 
that they'd be fairly attritional. He he, it was borderline parody how often he talked about winning sec- second balls. Not that that's not very important, but they weren't always particularly inventive or ambitious in possession. Uh, and and you look at them set up in a four-two-three-one this weekend with Ajaria, who we spoke about at length, who I'm just desperate to see given a role uh, and a, and a run in the side and just you know just some confidence basically from a manager. Uh, uh, he set up on the left of, of the three behind the, the, the front man, Lucas Joao. And with Omar Richards bombing on down the side, which allows Ajaria to, to come inside into that left half space. Swift playing as a 10, basically, with two leggy midfielders behind him. Rinomota is like a little tank, just sort of just ending attacks before they even start. Uh, and Josh Laurent seemed to have a good a good day as well. It was a really positive sign for, for Reading. And I think... You know, uh, I certainly nodded to myself when I looked at the way that Paunovic set them up, uh, the way that they played was impressive. They were up against a poor Derby side. But yeah, I, I, I suppose we should just have a line on Lucas Joao because uh scored a hat-trick in the Carabao. Uh, started very well here with a goal and an assist. Could he be the one if he stays fit? Could, 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 could we see him racking up, let's say, 15 goals or more? We've been here before, haven't we? Um, we know that Lucas Shaw and Reading fans know that Lucas Shaw and Sheffield Wednesday fans know that Lucas Shaw on his day is is basically unplayable at this level. And th- these days often come in patches. We saw him score a hat-trick last Saturday. We saw him put in such a good performance. Um, I mean, the, the assist for the second goal, if you haven't seen it, this cheeky back heel inside his left foot. Um, to Ajaria is really impressive. Andre Wisdom's marking for both goals is is shocking. Both for the corner, he lets Xiao go and looks around him, thinking like, "Ah, oh, I wonder if anyone else will get him." And for the for the second, the run of Ajaria is quite clearly should be his. I mean, he's the second defender behind Xiao, and it's an overlapping run, and he comes inside, Bizarre. and then he looks around again as if he doesn't know what's happened. But not to take anything away from Xiao, but the issue is we've seen this before with Reading. We've seen this before last season with Reading, where it was George Puskas who put in a really impressive dominant performance early on in an impressive first game of the season victory. It's maintaining that form for both Reading and Zhao that's going to be difficult, but certainly on a Saturday, it was more pound hub than pound land. <laughs> Very good. Well done. Yeah, positive signs for Reading. They, they just need to sort of put their head down and, and keep those levels of performance up, actually. Uh, they've got Barnsley at home on the weekend and Cardiff away. Uh, then Watford, so, you know, plenty of different styles they're going to come up against. No doubt plenty of teams who won't make it quite as easy for them as as this miserable Derby performance. Uh, you pointed everything out, really, there in terms of Andre Wisdom. But the thing that really summed things up was he got hooked at half-time. Uh, Nathan Byrne came on. Nathan Byrne got booked uh, before he'd even kicked a ball in a Derby shirt because no one told the officials that they were making this up. So 90 seconds into the <laughs> second half, one of the officials or the ref was like, hold on. Where's Nathan Byrne come from here? They're like, oh, we subbed, we subbed him on for Andre Wisdom. who had a stinker. They were like, yeah, no, that's a technical yellow. And Byrne has to take the flag for that, which I thought was a bit harsh. But yeah, yeah, very disappointing for Derby. But again, you know, we'll give them that one. We're not going to get too concerned just yet. Um, just what... a cock up from Koku, isn't it? Bloody hell, you're absolutely on one today. <laughs> it's like me saying, <laughs> it's like me saying Lewandowski. It's just really got, you really got your juices flowing. You want to make. I liked the Cy Watts, friend of the pod, Cy Watts' voiceover on EFL on Quest for um, Mark Robbins and Dean Holden. Hurt my head. Holden, Holden holding on whilst Robbins, the Robbins sink Robbins all in one sentence. Yeah. I was just, yeah, that Very was inspiration for today's 
puns. They are next level, some of those uh, Quest uh, match reporter puns, I must say. Uh, right now, let's talk about three narrow wins for the three relegated Premier League teams. Uh, Watford Borough was on Friday night. This kicked off our campaign. Main takeaway from that, Vladivic, absolutely terrifying, just as I was hoping he would be. Um, just he really... nearly smiled at one point, and then he <laughs> looked like he remembered and then stopped smiling very quickly. Where do you want to start on this one? I mean, with, with Watford, a lot of the guys we were hoping to see, Estupinan and Luis Suarez, they were not in the squad. And supposedly, where well, Estupinan's leaving to Villarreal, uh, Suarez is, is wanted by many teams as well. We probably won't see him. But we still did see a few players that we don't know that well. Uh, certainly in Joao Pedro up front, uh, Ngakia down the right side as a wing-back, and Ken Semmer uh, in the central midfield who provide that brilliant cross for the opening goal. And then there's a few guys that we do recognise, players like Craig Cathcart uh, uh, and Cleverly and Chalabai in midfield. It was it was an interesting one. I, I, thought, I thought Watford, actually without the ball, were pretty impressive and, and clearly worked very hard. Uh, with the ball rusty and certainly not in sync in the final third, which is which is not that surprising. Many teams were this weekend. Uh, and Middlesbrough I was a bit confused about as well because there were some positive signs. There was a lot of stuff that wasn't really working. And Neil Warnock in his post-match, George, is like, he's absolutely buzzing. His new yeah. positive demeanour, I, I, I don't trust it at all. We see, we see through it, don't we? We know what he's doing. He just kept going... I'm so, I'm so happy. I'm loving working with these lads. They're doing so well. And um, yeah, I'm just really, in, they're doing so well. And I'm like, hold on. I mean, yeah. And he said he couldn't understand how Don Goodman had given man of the match to one of the Watford players. And if, if Neil Warnock doesn't know that, you know, generally the broadcaster will give man of the match to a, t- to a player on the winning side, then um, yeah, I think we have to take Warnock's comments with a pinch of salt. I think we all know what he's doing. He's trying to cultivate a positive atmosphere at the club. That interview wasn't for you and I. That interview wasn't for your neutrals. That interview was for Middlesbrough fans. It was for Middlesbrough players. Yeah. And it was for, for the boards. And it, it'll probably work. Well, we've um, said, haven't we, that this squad doesn't look like the sort of squad that Warnock normally works with and gets a lot out of, in that it's very young and quite inexperienced in many parts. Hmm. Maybe he's, maybe he, as as the manager of a, of a younger squad, is taking a different management style, which is absolutely understandable for, you know, different horses for courses, I suppose, when it, it comes to man management. And if you remember, um, you know, when we spoke to Richard Woods on going up, going down about, about the Warnock, and he just said he's a manager, as soon as you come in, you just want to play for him. You're just buzzing to play for him. Yeah. And you think back to Jonathan Woodgate's post-match interviews last year, which, you know, went from the sublime to the ridiculous, really. Uh, always incredibly intense, incredibly you know, because they're normally after defeats, fairly negative and, and just and just grim. Exactly. And yeah. his, you know, his method of trying to stick up for his players was, was to, well, I mean, fairly regularly, he didn't fairly regularly. He dropped key players, young players after poor performances, but he would very much not be smiling and praising after losses. Yeah. He'd be trying to front up. Uh, and this is something very different. Just, just one quick thing on Watford, though, because, mm. you know, I, I need a new ball carrying hero because I lost Jack a couple of years ago. I've now lost to Berry. What about Ajaria? Yeah, yes. Contender. Yeah. Contender. But I'm more up for an 18-year-old Brazilian from Fluminense uh, <laughs> in Chao Pedro because, like, whoa. That's, I mean, he doesn't play in the right position as for me. He's not a centre midfielder or someone who comes in offside. But like, he is, as a striker who drops deep and drives oh. at goal the way he does. That, and- I'm so angry. Who did he play in and, and made a poor touch? I think it was Ngakia who was around coming the in corner. off the right. That was my favourite one of the lot. When he came deep, literally touched, then played the, like uh, around the corner with his right. It was just 
I mean, he looks absolutely brilliant. I'm so excited to watch him more. I sent you a text about 20 minutes in when he picked up the ball on the halfway line, back to goal, span a man, beat two, and then shot kind of a decent strike, but straight at the keeper. Mm. And I just texted you being like, mm, if João Pedro is going to be doing that a lot this season, then <laughs> I think we're going to have a bit of fun. So I'm, uh, I disagree with Neil Warnock. I thought he was very much um, worthy of his, uh, of his accolade. Yeah, I think we saw that, that Tavernier's performances are going to be pretty important for Middlesbrough unless they can bring some other creative players in because, uh, you know, they're, they're clearly going to play down the sides a lot, try and make the most of Jed Spence's talent and uh, and Marvin Johnson or Coulson. The left wing backs, they're fairly well stocked in those positions. But are Fletcher and Asombolonga going to absolutely thrive off, off that? Do they need more through the middle? I would say so. Uh, and while Tavernier's movement was good, I think I thought on the ball he was pretty poor, and and that's gonna that's gonna make a big difference. And such a, well, I mean, I say such a young player. He's had he's had a few chances now. He he really needs to uh, to kick on this year. Otherwise, Middlesbrough are going to struggle to create. I think at times this season. Uh, right, let's go to the highest scoring game in the Championship weekend. George, only two games out of twelve going over two point five goals. One of them, Bournemouth three, Blackburn Rovers two. Uh, what did you make of Bournemouth's return to the second tier? It was it got the job done, I guess. They, they weren't particularly impressive. I thought Blackburn, if I was going to take a team out of the game to kind of take on a bit more, not to say Blackburn were better, but just, you know, they looked very good um, and they they were conceding, you know, they were unlucky enough to concede some very good goals, if that makes sense. You know, it was the, a bit of a slugfest, wasn't it? They, they sort yeah, of it was. went toe-to-toe with each other and it feels like it, it could have easily gone either way. And, and you know, the I guess the kind of the... What Bournemouth fans would be telling us or saying to us is it's Premier League quality. Well, you know, Jack Stacey's finish was brilliant, kind of cutting across the ball from about 25 yards into the bottom corner. Um, Dan Juma's goal was also high quality, but um, you know, Bournemouth aren't going to be tucking those away every week. And it was unlucky for Blackburn that they were on the receiving end of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a big three points for them. I think we can probably put Watford, Norwich, and Bournemouth in the same category here of 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 getting the three points but none of them have really done much i don't think to speak of for their title credentials at, the, at this stage i'm not saying that they're not going to get there comments but not conclusions there certainly, certainly wasn't a side well that's what i'm saying there certainly wasn't a side now yeah. who we're going to talk about of those three and be like Whoa, okay one of these guys is, is better than the others mm. um but really important for Jason. I mean, the most important thing here is Jason Tindall just getting a win. You know, the first game after Eddie Howe's uh, reign, just, just getting a win un- under their belt, scoring three goals and, and kind of kick-starting the season with three points. I think Dan Juma might be my new one this season, mate, to be honest. I, I didn't know a huge amount about him. Other than that, I knew some Bournemouth fans were upset. He hadn't got more chances in the Premier League. But that goal was quite spectacular, I thought. And just it was just the speed with which he moved with the ball, the power in his shot, finding the top corner. It was, uh, it was a little bit of quality that we don't see that often uh, at this level. And I, and I note that he's got two Dutch caps, so maybe we shouldn't be too surprised. He scored an international goal against Belgium. So, I mean, you could, you could argue that he shouldn't be playing in, the, in, in England's second tier. But uh, I wasn't sure what was a better summation of Bournemouth's strengths. Just going through the starting eleven, which looked very strong on paper, or the fact that Philip Billing, Dan Gosling and David Brooks came off the bench. Definitely does show the, the options that Tyndall has at his disposal. But I agree that Blackburn shouldn't feel 
to put out here. Maybe it shows the need for a centre-back for Blackburn. Maybe that Bradley Johnson goal showed the need for Bournemouth to invest in a goalkeeper. I, I don't want to be too harsh on Travers. Uh, we know that, that goalies at this level can and do have make errors uh, and it doesn't make them terrible goalkeepers. But uh, yeah, I thought that was a that was an interesting game and another lovely finish from Adam Armstrong. I think we can really get used to that this mm. year. Um, I noticed that he was very lively, very involved, and that bodes very, very well. Um, okay, we've got a few more games to go through. Birmingham 1, Brentford 0. Bristol City 2, Coventry 1. Barnsley 0, Luton 1. Wickham 0, Rotherham 1. Preston 0, Swansea 1. And I wanted to give you, George, the option to choose your own adventure here. Which of those games uh, would you like to talk about first and what would you like to talk about? I think we've got to talk about Blues Bees, haven't we? Yeah. For the second consecutive season uh, on opening day, Blues have done one on Brentford's. Although this was a little bit different. Last August, we saw Brentford having 15 shots to Birmingham's one, which was a header from outside the area, which flew in. And on this occasion, Brentford still had enough chance well to score at least one they hit the woodwork twice they had you know a, a fair amount of, of of opportunity and it was just Birmingham's keeper really who kept them in the game um or kept them ahead I should say um but Birmingham were better than I anticipated I mean Bella who scored the goal I, mean, I don't think we're going to see him score many near post headers but but he certainly looks like a player who could provide some much needed attacking thrust for them uh, I'm not a massive fan of an Adam Clayton Ivan Sunic centre midfield duo but um for Ita Karanka, um, certainly the way he likes to play, to break up play kind of within his own half and then to break quickly. Um, they should be pretty effective at doing that so long as they don't have to, well, as long as Clayton doesn't have to run backwards too much. But certainly Zach Geekock, um, the, you know, the, the story of the of the day, um, spent last season on loan at Gloucester City, making his debut because Neil Etheridge had only signed the day before and keeping, uh, yeah, keeping the title favourites um, for a clean sheet. He, it's one of those decisions now for Karanka where I'm pretty sure he's going to be quite keen to bring Etheridge in but to drop a, a 19 year old homegrown keeper on the back of that display is going to probably not go down too well with the um, with the fans especially as I'm pretty sure he's, he's, he's a better keeper than the one they've had in net for the last two seasons but um, all credit to to uh, Birmingham and this was you know maybe last season we thought this was the end of the the classic Brentford creating chances and not scoring, but that was a return to, to that kind of form that we saw in the early kickoff. Yeah, last season they when they went behind Brentford, which wasn't that often in fairness, uh, they only equalised thirty five percent of the time. So two thirds of the times when their opponent took the lead, they didn't get back into the game. In comparison, West Brom, who obviously went up just ahead of them, when they went behind, they equalised seventy. 70% of the time, so twice as much as, as Brentford. And that was a real issue for Bees last season. The same story in this one, something clearly to work on. Uh, I thought Josh De Silva did about as much as he could have possibly done uh, from the central midfield role. But I would like to see whoever else is playing in that number eight role. Jensen was injured early, Marcondes came in. Like I would like to see a little bit more from whoever's playing in that position. Uh, and, and, and clearly, you know, some of that front three are still... Growing into the season, Burmo had three big chances, didn't he? Um, De Silva hit the post, Canos hit the bar. It would be wrong to say Birmingham shut Brentford down, but that doesn't mean there aren't huge positives here for Blues fans. I think just seeing a defence structured and set up in that way is already just a huge improvement on what they had last year under Clotet. They see a team that has a plan. Um, last season, they scored 75 goals, which is over one and a half per game. It seems impossible for me to imagine that with, let's say, Etheridge in goal, 
this back four of Collin, Dean, Friend and Pedersen with Sunjic and Clayton in front of them. I'd be shocked if they concede anywhere near that number of goals. So lots of positivity there for uh, Birmingham. I wanted to talk about Barnsley nil, Luton one. Didn't go the way that, that I was expecting necessarily. I think there was so much uh, good energy coming off Barnsley's end to last season. That's not to say that Luton didn't finish well, but it's just the manner in which Barnsley had been playing. The credit that Struber was getting for, for the way that he sets them up. The fact that with Leeds gone, I was expecting Barnsley to be the pressing side in the league this season, swarming all over Luton. Um, and that wasn't the case at all. It was, it was Luton who pressed well here. Luton who who had the technical quality and Luton who looked solid at the back. And uh, it, it, it's a remarkable situation uh, under Nathan Jones. Since he returned, they've won six of 11, uh, drawn four and only lost the one. They've also scored 16 goals from 24 shots on target. So only just over two shots on target per game uh, since Jones returned. And 16 goals from that. It feels like a conversion rate that cannot be sustained, which is incredibly boring for Luton fans to hear. But it's it's something to look out for, that's for sure. It, it is just one goal conceded in six away games under Jones. So at the very least, if this is how they're going to play away games, if they're going to be so difficult to score against, and with the options they do have up top, whether it's Collins, who we know finishes his chances, whether it's Cornick to stretch the play, because Engelualua, who's always such a, a wild card off the bench as well, can really impact games. Uh, it, it's really positive and, and, yeah, disappointing from a Barnsley perspective. We won't try and draw too many conclusions, but given the expectations on them, uh, this was disappointing, albeit a huge miss from the debutante freezer. Uh, you know, they could easily have left with a draw there. So uh, that leaves three more games I that I want to... say, quick, quick prediction for you, although we're not doing conclusions, I think Luton will have quite a lot of nil-nil draws, especially in the coming weeks. Okay, that's one to remember for the betting show, certainly. Mm. Um, which of the other games did you want to touch on here? Um, the Bristol City-Coventry game, I think we have to mention positives for both sides, yep. really. Um, your man, Jamie Patterson, proving again that he... Lee Johnson's decision to loan him out last season when they didn't have a creative force in the final third or from a little bit deeper is just bonkers. Uh, a goal and, and an assist, although the assist was a corner. Um, but, yeah, I mean, again, in the 1-24s, to we were positive on Bristol City, but the negative was Dean Holden. We just don't know enough about him. You can't be bullish about a team's chances with a manager who you don't know about. But the, you know, especially because the form last season at Ashton Gate was, was so poor, to, to get an early win there feels important because it just felt like for whatever reason that side didn't enjoy playing at home um, but for Coventry for Matt Godden to get off the mark early on they had their fair share of chances as well and, and going away to to Bristol City to show up as they did um, you know we we haven't spoken about the Wick and Rotherham game I don't know if we will um, but even though you know Rotherham won that game or whatever it, it felt like Coventry's the level of Coventry's performance was mm. above those two yeah. Uh, maybe because that was just a war of attrition. But, um, but yeah, positive stuff for Kov. Well, let me touch on the set-piece Classico uh, between Wickham and Rotherham. He, he, and, and I can say that without feeling bad because Paul Warren basically alluded to that in his post-match, said we, we were both magnificent set-piece teams last year. I felt it would be a set-piece that decided this game. Uh, one of our Sunday scouting reports that was sent in on Twitter on Sunday said nothing different between these two sides. If you watched them last season in League One, this was exactly how this game um, was going to play out. And it was interesting that, that Wickham actually created by far the better chances and were the better side uh, for the most part in this game. Horgan missed a great chance, didn't he, after just two minutes. Um, they had a few chances themselves from set pieces. Darius Charles hit the bar. And it really was Rotherham's basically pretty much their only chance of the game, as far as I could tell. 
a, a, a towering header from Ihikwe, uh right at the end to send them home with three points. So, um, you know, I, I mentioned it before as a concern for Rotherham that they were too reliant on set pieces. But Hugh Davis, who's, who's a great friend of the pod, did point out that, that that's probably the sort of skill that can translate higher up. Um, you know, if, if you watch, there's a, there's a video on YouTube of all of Rotherham's goals last season. And the, se- the, the second half of it, the last like four minutes, the last 30 goals or so, it is, it's astounding how many of them are set pieces or, or second phase from a set piece. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, and, and it got them the win here today. I did note that the pass completion in this game, 37% passes completed for, Wick- oh my God. for Wickham uh, and 49% from Rotherham. So, uh, you know, El, Wickham, El Cornico. Yeah, Wickham with, Wickham with Cashgate up top is obviously less of an aerial, well, just no aerial option to hit him. So they were all aiming it towards Wheeler. We know as wingers go, he's brilliant in the air and, and that's certainly not a poor option. But you do feel like over the, se- over the course of the season, they will have to adapt their attacking play uh, and try their best. But yeah, I did note with a smile that they created the third amount of expected goals in the whole division, Wickham. Uh, third in, in in the championship. Right, Preston nil, Swansea won. It didn't feel like there was a huge amount to this game. If I'm honest, George, I know that from Swansea fans' perspective, they're really pleased with the clean sheet and, and how solid that Cabango rode on Guehi back three looked. My main takeaway was that, based on the highlights, it basically looked like the Jake Bidwell show. I thought Alfonso Davis was the most attacking left back in world football, but it looks like Bidwell in this in this uh, in this wing back role might take over from him. But yeah, it was hard to glean too much from either side in this game. I think it was it was pretty even, uh, and Swansea nicking the win. Morgan Gibbs White on the score sheet, which was nice to see arriving late into the box. I think that's going to be a real uh, a real addition to Swansea's attacking arsenal this season. So hopefully more of the same from Gibbs White. Um, and and we're not going to do any analysis at all on Millwall nil Stoke nil. So I'm really sorry about that. But I I imagine <laughs> I imagine that both sides are probably fairly happy with that point uh, and happy to move on. Uh, without dwelling too much on it. Uh, George, time for a little uh, interlude. Our sponsors, The Athletic, are continuing to sponsor the Monday pod, uh, which is very welcome. And uh, and we're going to be doing, well, more of the same from last season, picking a piece each week that we think is worth a read and just chatting about it and recommending it to you guys, the listeners. Yeah, delighted to still be involved with The Athletic. Obviously, we are now hosting the Totally Football League show Extra Time uh, in conjunction with the Athletic as well. That's on Thursdays, but delighted that every other week the Athletic will be sponsoring us here as well. And today we're going to be talking about a piece by Stuart James. It's not necessarily an EFL-specific piece, although it does have a few mentions of Swansea, and it is called Dear Football Fans, I Miss You, Yes, Even You. And it is effectively a love letter both to fans and to the experience mm. of watching live football. I mean, the, the thing is, normally, Ali, we when we talk about these pieces, we kind of read out snippets, but I don't really want to give too much of it away because it is such a great read. But there's one part that I loved, and that was kind of a group of paragraphs, all starting with the word, I miss. Mm. And for anybody who regularly attends games, all of it is so familiar and it kind of conjures memories, our own little bits and bobs of our matchday experience, which are always the same. For me, you know, it's turning up about four and a half hours early so my dad can get the spot in the car park that he wants and having a pork pie with him before the game. It's those little bits and bobs that we're not able to enjoy at the moment. Um, and, you know, all the talk, rightly so, around fans not being at games at the moment is around, you know, the, the future of the clubs and the future of the football clubs and how clubs are going to deal with it. But 
crucially, you know, for, for fans as well, it's it's difficult to watch the season starting and not being there to, to see it all unfold. Yeah, absolutely. He's a magnificent writer, Stuart James. Uh, he's joined us once or twice before on the Going Up, Going Down pod, which, as you mentioned, is now the Totally Football League show, Extra Time. Uh, and it's, a, as you say, I don't want to give it away. I really want you guys to go and read this piece because uh, it's, it's very emotive, shall we say. Um, one line that I liked was, a home match day used to last seven hours, leave at midday, get home at 7 p.m. Now it's been condensed into little more than 90 minutes. Log on at five to three and turn off when the final whistle is blown. We would spend it with thousands of others before. Now it's just the two of us. Uh, it's a brilliant piece and it's on the Athletic site. If you search for Stuart James, in the search bar, you'll find it. And if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, you can be. If you head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20pod, take advantage of the offer uh, that is available to you on theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20pod. Time for League One, George. You'll be delighted that we're going to start with Swindon 3, Rochdale 1. Uh, we tended to start with Swindon often on the League Two segment. Uh, on last season's Monday pod, because they were often winners and always interesting to discuss. It's actually not a particularly similar starting eleven to the one that won promotion from League Two, unlike, dare I say it, Crew, who came up with them. Uh, but an impressive win against a Rochdale side that looked like they, they are going to struggle as much as we thought. Um, plenty of positives for Swindon Town fans. Plenty of positives. Uh, this is another one where it's important not to get too carried away, but given the loss of key players. We've spoken a lot about Owen Doyle. We've spoken a lot about Jerry Yates. Um, we've spoken a little bit about Keshi Anderson, but also we now have to mention Michael Doughty and, and we don't know what's happened. Um, and we're not here to speculate at all. And fingers crossed everything with Michael Doughty and with the club is okay. But there was he was absent from the squad on Saturday. And then there was a statement from the club saying that the, the two parties had agreed to part company. This is a guy who was Swindon's captain last season as they won automatic promotion, uh, penalty taker and key player. So that is another really difficult loss for Richie Wellens to have to take in terms of, of the play and the playing style and, and the continuity of the squad from last season. So to come through this one against Rochdale um, was really good. And to get two of their Smiths, two of their three Smiths on the score sheet as well, um, important. I thought Sam Parkin made a good point on the EFL on Quest highlight show saying that this stylistically was basically a perfect game for Wellington to Swindon because you've got in Rochdale, Brian Barry Murphy encouraging, forcing his back line to, to pass with the ball across it against a side in Swindon who loved to hassle and harry and press high up the pitch. So it was no surprise to see one of the goals being um, it was the third goal being Smith breaking through midfield, pressing the centre-back, nicking the ball and then tucking it home. Because you know, that is, if, if you could draw a perfect opposition for Wellens, I'm sure this Rochdale side would be pretty close to being it. Yeah, Wellens ball alive and well, that's for sure. And I think just the relentlessness of their progress under him and his very management style make me think that, uh, you know, despite the serious creative hole left by the departure of Michael Doughty that I would still be positive if I was a Swindon fan um, as long as Wellens is there essentially there will be bumps in the road and, and there will be games where uh, that lack of creativity does come back to haunt them but at this level they're probably not going to come up against teams sitting deep in a low block so maybe the the importance of Doughty at times last season in unlocking those defensive uh, blocks with those 
creative passes maybe they won't need they won't need that as much as much as that is a huge skill to have in one squad I'm really excited about Jayasimi and Johnny Smith as their two wide men that's for sure uh, I want to talk about Hull who went to Gillingham which I dare say is, is one of the toughest places to go as the cliche goes in League One certainly playing uh, under Steve Evans they've been very very difficult to beat and I was hugely impressed with the Hull side uh, I probably won't keep mentioning this but maybe one more time a Hull side that lost 16 of their last 20 league games in the championship, um, went away to Jills and moved the ball well, scored a good goal early on, gave up one big chance, a ball over the top that Akinde ran onto, may, may have been offside actually, but actually couldn't finish his one-on-one. It was a good save. And that was about it. You know, despite being ahead from the third minute, they really kept Jills at arm's length. They defended properly. Uh, and yeah, as I say, I think they were impressive with the ball as well. Um, Keen Lewis Potter, who looks like the next star to fill the boots of Jared Bowen. I'm not saying he's as good as Jared Bowen, but clearly has a goal scorer's knack. This is a kid born and bred in Hull. Uh, when he scored his first league goal uh, last season, I think it was, he became the first Hull-born player to score for Hull City in the league since Nicky Barmby, which is very nice. And from what we've seen in, in, in short bursts a couple of times last season and now uh, in, in this early campaign, he just has this knack for goal scoring. I'm really looking forward to seeing how he develops. Uh, I'm also a bit concerned that his name, Keen Lewis Potter, is formatted wrong. I'm very confident that I will say Lewis Keen Potter uh, a lot this season. So apologies in advance, KLP uh, and Hull fans. But mightily impressed with the way that they started. Looking forward to seeing if they can continue in that vein. Uh, and another team that came down, George Charlton, they went to Crewe and left 2-0 winners as well. Another really significant, I think, uh, start to the campaign for this Charlton side. Yeah, I mean, Wigan were the only side in Championship and League One who were relegated and didn't pick up a win immediately. So, I mean, it's it's good for these sides to kind of steady the ship on relegation. And this was an impressive win. I think both Gillingham and Crewe fall into that that bracket of a really difficult place to go first game of the season for sides coming down but Charlton you know by no means necessarily dominated the game I think crew had their chances and um, the best one coming when they were already 2-0 down when Mandarin hit the bar but um, Charlton impressed you have to say um, Doughty's goal was that touch of class that we've seen from him in, in flashes last season and um, Connor Washington it wasn't a particularly well hit strike for his goal. It was a bit of a scuff, but it's not a particularly easy skill to volley the ball, kind of a, a slow bouncing ball from waist height. And for a player who's been prolific in the past, but has kind of struggled in recent times mm. just to get on the just to get on the score sheet and be one from one um, is important because yeah. Charlton's squad does look to be short of goals. And if he's expected to provide them, it, you know, they need him to get off to uh, a fast start. So even though, at this stage, the performance may not have been necessarily at kind of a particularly high level for Charlton. Um, it's still just important to get the win. And, and you know, you have to remember the circumstances off the pitch that the, that the management team are having to deal with, coupled with the fact they've still got a, a second-year scholar playing centre-back. It's all pretty impressive. Tell you what, they've got some lovely creative players in this side. Forster Kasky, we know when he's fit uh, especially, can be a beautiful sprayer. Uh, from midfield. Gilby set up Doughty for the first goal and got rave reviews from Charlton fans watching uh, on his league debut for the club. Uh, and Doughty, I mean, he's the star, isn't he, it seems, at the moment. Wanted by Celtic, 
presumably a fair few other clubs as well. Just electric pace, as you saw. Um, and, and I think the finish composed and in the corner was notable because he missed one or two similar chances at the back end of last season in, in you know, big moments in big games. Uh, and, and he sort of put, put things right to start the season. That'll give him a lot of confidence. Uh, I noted that he played off the right, right wing, cutting in uh, as a left footer. I haven't seen him off the right too often so far in, in his short career, but it very much adds to his versatility. Uh, if he can be a goal threat cutting in from the right, as well as uh, down the left side, whether it's as a left midfielder or even as a left wing back, his energy and delivery we, we, we know is very impressive. So just a, a, another impressive young player at Charlton. Thomas Sangard, the Danish businessman, is confident a takeover deal will be done by Wednesday. So watch this space for... Charlton. Accrington beat Posh 2-0. Uh, a really impressive win for Accrington. Peterborough did have their chances. Uh, and I keep banging on about this on Twitter, but I can't get over the fact that Accrington's goalkeeper is called Toby Savin. Because since the start of the season, he's been saving penalties in the cup, in the shootout. And he saved plenty of shots on, on Saturday as well. So in our nominative determinism EFL 11, which might be the most nerdy NTT 20 thing we've ever done uh I, i've gone through a couple of others george we've got callum styles a stylish midfield player we've got Ilias chair because he can sit people down with his skill uh dominic so lanky i'm not sure how lanky he actually is but i'm claiming that and jeremy bella who we mentioned earlier just beautiful footballer at times um what about what about callum camps <laughs> camps in the opposition half right okay Okay, very that good. Would be a good that, that would be a good segue if we we're now going to talk about the Fleetwood game. You can do, yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to just, just... Go on. Yeah, I think we're going to say the same thing. I just can't believe how good both the finishes were for Accrington. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're two of the best opening day goals. I mean, probably if you made a list of the best goals of the day, they'd both stake a claim to be up there. Absolutely. Certainly, Dion Charles' left-footed finish Ooh. on the drop Ooh. from just inside the area was... Yeah, I mean, what a signing he's been. Um, for Accrington, and another U- bit of John Coleman magic. Uakwe whacked it in Uakwe. with his right. There you go. Having scored three um, minutes left in midweek in the uh, in the EFL Trophy. But the, I mean, it was a combination of kind of composure and ruthlessness, just to approach that ball. So much time to think about it, and just to whip it in that right hand corner. Yeah. Um, really impressive. So, yeah, I mean, could Accrington be? <laughs> comments. Could they be? Comments, not conclusions. What I will could say. That's the comment. I, I hope Could so. Could they be the surprise package? I hope so. Um, what I will say for the tactics fans amongst you, a change of shape for Accrington. Uh, as long as as long as long we've been covering these leagues, they've always played four at the back, either a 4-4-2 or 4-2-3-1 or 4-5-1, whatever it may be. Um, but 3-5-2 uh, to start the season. Uakwe probably offering them that dynamism down the left and, uh, and down the right was Pritchard, who not a natural right wing back, you'd say, but very comfortable on the ball and uh, yeah it seemed to work well in this game against Peterborough maybe they were just matching up Posh uh, who obviously play that that sort of system themselves well remains to be seen but nice to see Coleman uh, uh, mixing things up a bit and yeah an eye-catching win certainly uh, as was the other 2-0 winners George in the division Lincoln City Michael Appleton doing the business over his former club Oxford uh, Yellows beat them 6-0 last season so this would have been sweet uh, in in a number of ways uh, you watch this one please tell me all about it yeah, not only did Oxford beat them 6-0 in this game last season, but it was the game after Appleton had been appointed and he sat and watched in the stands and it was last September. So <clears throat> you can see in the last 12 months the work that Appleton has done. Parallels, to, nice. To, um, yeah, to, to turn Lincoln, not around because they weren't in a bad state necessarily, but just it's now his team. It's now, you know, this is 
the squad of players that he wanted. Um, a lot of Oxford fans saying, you know, the, the style of football wasn't great. It was a couple of headers or whatever. But when you take the lead after seven minutes against a side who are very keen to keep hold of the ball, then adopting a low block is quite obviously the thing to do. And mm-hmm. they did it very well. Um, Oxford didn't have a shot on target until the 60th minute. I watched it. Um, you know, uh, 99% of Oxford fans that I've whose views I've read or listened to disagree. But I thought Oxford were, were pretty good, but they just came up against a side who... You know, it's important to remember if you've had no shots on target after 60 minutes because you're not taking pot shots from range but you're struggling to fashion anything decent that isn't necessarily a poor reflection on you it can just be that you're coming up against a side who are defending very well mm. by the end of the game Oxford had six shots on target um, of which one of them was an incredible save from the West Brom Loney for, uh, from Mark Sykes it was a double save but the second one was really impressive but yeah Lincoln just looked solid in every area um, I was really impressed by them their left-footed 17-year-old left-back. Um, don't know why he said he's left-footed. Most left-backs are. Um, Ruffin, um, who they signed over from Dublin 12 months ago, looked really good. Um, an absolute wand of a left foot. Kept him putting these really dangerous teasing crosses in from deep. Um, and looks a player who I'm pretty sure he's starting the season at left-back because that is where they expect him to, to be this season. So an exciting one for them. And... Having said that, Lincoln, you know, on the betting show, were a side to who may be under um, undervalued by the markets. They they look a from what I saw on Saturday, it was effectively two very good League One teams going up against each other, mm-hmm. and the one who got the the first goal were able to pretty comfortably sit on their lead. Not a million things to say about Fleetwood two Burton one. Uh, Fleetwood deserved that win. It's fair to say on on the balance of play and chances created. And Paddy Madden, everyone hit the post. Everyone hit the post. Uh, we, there's a there's a bit of a joke on. It's not a joke. It's just a a theme on the Quest highlight show on Saturday afternoons. Is that whenever we see that Paddy Madden has scored, it's always like we know what that goal looks like. He just he is the poachiest of poachers. Uh, and this was exactly right. And it's an unbelievable skill. And he's such a valuable player for this club. He seems to score winning goals. Um, he does, you know, he doesn't always start, does he? And you sometimes wonder why, because his goal return is so good. But maybe that's part of his charm. Maybe coming on uh, fresher towards the, the the end of the game and being able to poach these goals is uh, is what sort of stands him apart. Um, Chad Evans did start this one. Madden did start as well, but off the left, it's often the case for him. He sometimes finds uh, Evans kind of hard to to shift if he wants to be playing up top. But a good win for Fleetwood. Still got a very young defensive unit: Stubbs and Hill. Uh, at centre-back there, um, but they did well. Uh, and Certainly not youngsters in front of them, Paul Coots and G- Glenn Whelan uh, in the double pivot in midfield. Uh, George, did you see much of Ipswich 2, Wigan nil or Plymouth 1, Blackpool nil? Which of those games were you most interested in? I saw more of Plymouth 1, Blackpool nil because during um, Ipswich 2, Wigan nil, I was carrying boxes in and out of, of houses. Um yeah, it, it, I've got more to say. We've got a little bit at the end of this pod where there's something to be said about Blackpool, so I'll save it for that. But um, yeah, I mean, this is just the narrative is the same for, for Plymouth to come up and to um, to get an early result, to get an early three points, especially when so many of the fancy teams in the division stuttered immediately, will do them a world of good it, very quickly. I mean, you know, the the first game is worth as much as the 12th game and the 36th game mm-hmm. and the you know throughout the season you can't say one way matters more than the other but it's when you don't get those wins that's when things start to to get nervous and if you look at crew for example who put in a decent performance in defeat at home 
if they go another couple of games without picking up points, that's when things, you know, the, the don't want to say momentum, but I'm going to, from last season, is going to, to stall. So for clubs like Swindon and Plymouth to, to get that early win, I do think carries a lot of weight. Yeah, Plymouth also significant that they kept a clean sheet here, although Blackpool did pepper the goal and they have the goalkeeper Cooper to thank for it. Um, they did concede the fourth highest expected goals in League Two last season from open play, which was surprising. The full stat there, if I didn't explain it well, Plymouth conceded open play chances worth 35.3 expected goals, ranking them 20th in the league. Um, but they benefited from their opposition failing to convert their chances into goal into goals, conceding 11 goals fewer than their projection. So we know that Palmer, the goalkeeper on loan from West Brom last season, had a magnificent season. Maybe that uh, sums that up. And, and we know that Luke Jeffcott finished the season very well, didn't he? Uh, and he got another goal here, which mm. will stand them in very, very good stead indeed. Not too much to worry about, I don't think, for Blackpool yet really lacks defending. I was screaming at CJ Hamilton to clear the ball uh, and he didn't. Not only did he not clear it, but absolute powder puff attempt to stop the cross. Um, and Jeff Cook with a very smart finish in fairness. Ipswich beat Wigan 2-0. It's hard to analyse this one too in depth given that Wigan, uh, as we know, were in difficult shape squad-wise. They had young players playing centre-back. One of them, Obi, actually had a free header early on uh, which could have put them into a, a surprise lead. They also hit the bar with Joe Garner but it was clear that Ipswich were the stronger side, were the more comfortable side, uh, and they got the win as well. Uh, I just wanted to say what a pleasure it was to spend the afternoon with former Wigan manager Paul Cook on Saturday. Uh, it, it's it's one of my favourite parts of working on the Quest show, whether I'm on screen or producing, but mixing with the guests that come in each week, these guys who have had unbelievable careers, both as players, but also in, in uh, what I hadn't realised until the weekend was that when he managed Sligo Rovers, he had a huge rivalry with Michael O'Neill, who was the who was manager of a rival club over in Ireland at the time. Uh, and it was really fun to chat to him and uh, really wish him all the best. I've no doubt that in a couple of months' time, if there are uh, a few managerial departures, then Cook's name will, will still be on people's lips because of the way that that Wigan side finished last season. Um, and I, I do hope that for his sake that he, he is back in employment uh, sometime soon. Uh, other results in that division that we're not going to touch on, the draws, Sunderland 1, Bristol Rovers 1, Pompey 0, Shrewsbury 0, Northampton 2, Wimbledon 2, uh, and Doncaster 1, MK Dons 1. Uh, more on those teams in the coming weeks, absolutely no doubt about that. Where do we have to start? in League Two, George Ellick, both for the team that wins and probably the team that lost it as well. I think it has to be Southend nil, Harrogate Town 4, their first ever game in the EFL. 4-0 win. Easy. Yeah, uh, and I think we're going to look back at this as being quite a fortunate um, fixture for Harrogate to open up with, but that's to take nothing away from them because they took their chance so, so well. Uh, You know, it's kind of dreamland for a club to come up and have their first game and win it 4-0. And when you look into the stories of the goal scorers as well, it's just brilliant. You've got Jack Muldoon, the, the star striker from last season. I think he scored 16 until football was cancelled. He's 32 years old, I think he is, or 31 years old. Played three EFL games for Rochdale in a failed um, move there about 10 years ago. Hasn't played since. Got Lloyd Kerry, who's 32 years old. He played EFL football in 2009. Uh, played 20 odd appearances, coming back into the AFL in his early 30s. Then Aaron Martin is my favourite of the lot, who 
I said this on Five Live on Saturday. He signed for Harrogate in March. <laughs> he turned pro aged 28 in March, signed for Harrogate. His first game of the season was meant to be the game, the first game that was abandoned. So his debut was cancelled for COVID. He made, his debuts in, he made his debut in the playoffs, starting in the semi-final and the final. Didn't score either. And then scores on what's just his third appearance for the club in the AFL. It's just brilliant. It's all fairy tale stuff. When you add into that all the narrative about Simon Weaver and his dad Irving, the chairman, it's a brilliant story. Mm. And I'm so, my only thing, it's just such a shame that they won't be playing their first home game at their stadium because they'll be playing at Doncaster whilst the pitch gets relayed. Um, but what a start for them. It's not going to get any easier, <laughs> let's say that. Um, it's going to get a lot tougher. South End were abject and appalling in equal measure, we have to say, in terms of defensive mistakes and a seeming disregard for, um, I mean, clearing just for defending. The ball, defending. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that viral clip is obviously the main takeaway from that game. Um, I, I, I do feel a little bit bad because while it, it does, sh- I mean, while it says a lot about uh, about the state of that team at the moment. Um, like I can kind of see I'm a bit confused why the defender didn't just hoof it clear or at least try and shield the ball or the keeper move yeah but I, I, I sort of understand why they then complain and say well uh, he was in the box when we took the goal kick so uh, and you shouldn't be in the box when you take a goal kick so that should be a foul but actually the rules are fair play to the ref because I saw a lot of people saying no no that should have been a free kick let's not laugh at them uh, but if a player takes a free kick quickly and an opponent who's less than 10 yards from the ball intercepts it, the referee allows play to continue. So it feels like if you decide to take it quickly, uh, that's kind of on your head, be it, if you then lose the ball because someone's in the box. Um, so that was that was kind of interesting. My, my favourite... Just, just another thing on that clip as well, that you, know, you laugh at the goal, and we all do, but for Aaron Martin, the player I was talking about, to have the presence of mind after he tackles him, not just to kind of spin and shoot, hmm. but actually to set the ball back was... You don't you don't often see that level of kind of selflessness, I guess, and kind of yeah. presence of mind. Um, so credit to him. My uh, my favorite my favorite story that you've not mentioned is Josh Falkingham, who's the captain. He's the midfield general, thirty year old. That was his first uh, EFL appearance as well. Uh, a Leeds boy who was released uh, when he was a youngster, when he was probably twenty years old, didn't break through at Leeds. Basically went up to Scotland, spent uh, a, a long time playing in Scottish Div 3, Div 2, Div 1 uh, with Arbroath and Dunfermline, then came back to Darlington in 16-17. He's been with Harrogate since the start of the 2017-18 season. As I say, he's the captain. He's a brilliant midfield player as well, both combative and good on the ball. He's also manager of the reserve team, which I love. Um, and just, you know, really kind of sums up uh, the way that everyone mucks in at Harrogate. And congratulations to them. Barrow, of course, drew their first game, one all with Stevenage. They did take the lead, um, but they were pegged back in that game. I want to talk about Cambridge 3, Carlisle 0, because I think this might be one of the loudest results of the weekend in terms of maybe not getting too carried away. Um, Cambridge were 2-0 up after 15 minutes here with some really nice finishes. Uh, and, you know, you have to give them credit for that. They, they created two chances. Carlisle's back line looked pretty shaky, it's fair to say. Carlisle absolutely battered them after that. Uh, five shots in total for Cambridge, 17 for, for Carlisle. 3-0 winners, uh, Cambridge. I did note that Omari Patrick of Carlisle managed to have seven of those 17 shots. Two of them were off target and five of them were blocked. So he didn't actually reach the goal or hit the target with any of those shots, which I thought was quite funny. Other notes from this game, the highest pass completion on the pitch... Wesley Houlihan, obviously, tidy as ever. 
of um, is is Kyle Noyle or Trent Alexander Noyle, as I saw uh, one of the other Cambridge players calling him on uh, on social media. He had a smashing game, set up two goals from right back. But I'm just reserving judgment. I think it's fair to say on Cambridge. Uh, let's see how they go in their next game. What about uh, Bolton nil, Forest Green one? Uh, George Bolton's return to the fourth tier after a long time away. Uh, and it, it does feel like they might just need a bit of time to gel. Uh, Forest Green's sort of managed this game a bit better, I thought. Yeah, I guess this is what we're talking about in terms of getting early wins, where all talk about Everett and his Bolton side and them being favourites and the style of football and everything. But they've played three competitive games in the last week and they've lost all three. So really, you're going to need to see some evidence fairly soon of things happening. It's important not to get carried away by those results, but Everett will be desperate um, to register something in a competition fairly soon. Uh, I was interested, kind of, they were the one team whose passing stats I was looking out for, or the talk about Barrow Salona. And they did keep the ball fairly well, but, but not in very dangerous areas of the pitch. Looking at the player passing stats, Alex Baptiste tops it with 70, the centre-back Santos, his centre-back partner, 63. And then looking down the list, you know, Doyle 11, Delfonso 13. Obviously, their job isn't to necessarily pass the ball, but we talk about how Owen Doyle needs the service to be effective. And he touched the ball just 18 times in the game. He had a couple of shots, but both from kind of just inside the area. So some concern there, I would say, especially when when chasing the game. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's too early to be concerned, but I think as a neutral looking on, if you, you need to see some evidence of this Bolton team being good given that it's a whole new side in these players and as Baptiste has played for the club before but it's effectively 11 debutants playing so it, it's going to take time but that there's no evidence at the moment to suggest that they are the rightful favourites mm. well in fairness Salford uh, only drew against Exeter and I think from what I saw in that game Exeter were the better side there even if Salford did start uh, pretty strongly so maybe they need a bit of time to click as well it's not one of the games we're going in depth on this week but no doubt we'll talk about Salford and Exeter in more depth in the coming uh, weeks. Port Vale absolutely walked it against Crawley. As, as comfortable a 2 0 win as you're likely to see. I'm afraid the Vale fans that we heard from uh, on the Sunday scouting reports could not have been more negative about what Crawley offered, uh, which was absolutely nothing. Uh, and that is quite concerning given given the clip we've all seen of John Yems recently and his interview and how just... Uh, how angry he looked and how, how what a poor mood he's been in recently. This isn't going to help. And it just concerns me a little bit, uh, having lost some key players that Crawley, you know, they can't afford to have a shocker, having shocking start to the season and start panicking like maybe Stevenage did last year or something. That That's something that I'm really looking out for. But, you know, from a Vale point of view, we, we, we knew they were going to be solid. Uh, Leon Legg and Nathan Smith, such a good partnership at this level. The midfield looked like it had nice balance in that three and, 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 and in the final third as well, they looked really good. Devante Rodney impressing, playing out on the left wing. Uh, and Mark Cullen, just absolute sharpshooter, got two goals. This is a guy who, at this level before, playing for Blackpool, has scored a lot of goals, who could not really get fit at the start of last season, but just by the time football finished in, in February and March time, he'd started scoring for this Port Vale side. And yeah, um, no reason not to be feeling pretty positive, I think, as a Vale fan, having been tipped by everyone as basically the dark horses for the division. It was uh, an excellent start as well for Morecambe. Uh, George, who went to Cheltenham and went 1-0 down, 
and left 2-1 winners. This was a pretty uh, pretty funky opening weekend result. Probably the probably the longest odds winners, I might suggest, of the weekend. Yeah, and especially given that Cheltenham went 1-0 up uh, with Alfie May, the chances of, of Morecambe coming back and winning this seem pretty slim. But it does feel like on reputation alone, they are seen as being one of the weakest teams in the league. But their business in the summer looked decent. And, and Derek Adams as manager, they've got a guy who you know, is not... Um, just taking over a club to try and keep them safe. He'll have higher aspirations and, and ambitions for them as well. So interesting to see them winning this one and winning it 2-1 with a very late goal as well and, and a massive start for them. But certainly not time to panic for Cheltenham, I wouldn't say. Although this is the second time that they've been kind of shell-shocked at Wooden Road, um, squandering a 2-0 playoff lead there and then squandering a 1-0 lead against Morecambe in the first game of the season. So Mike Duff will be hoping that he can pretty quickly sort out whatever issues they've got um, and hopefully come over overcome any mental issues but a little new one just because it's the first game of the season Ali I provided a little bit of stats corner for us Uh-oh. and counting them rank highly just because it's the first game of the season we're looking for kind of new trends and new ideas and maybe looking a little bit deeper than just the results and see what teams are playing what certain ways and the first one I've got for you is the sides who had the most shots on target in the EFL this weekend right Cheltenham I named is one of them with eight who do you think the other one was I reckon the other one was Sunderland correct Sunderland with that second half onslaught Mm. against Bristol Rovers also registering eight Ipswich were third in seventh couple of teams on six about five or six over the the leagues Pompey and Oxford being two of them so maybe a little bit of a caveat there to the some good good goalkeeping performances this weekend it's fair to say yeah And then Bristol City were top in the championship as well with just six, which is quite interesting. Mm. Uh, I then looked at passes attempted. You up for hazarding a guess as to who topped that one? I've already seen that Cheltenham had loads of possession, so I'd expect they'd be somewhere near the top. Cheltenham were about sixth. Uh, Derby topped this Mm. one. 593 passes attempted. But interestingly, Blackpool second with 565. So maybe uh, Neil Critchie there, we're going to see a side who like to keep the ball moving, like to keep it on the deck. Brentford, unsurprisingly, 5-5-3. Sunderland, 5-3-4, goes against the parky kind of narrative of of the long ball stuff. But interestingly, in League 2, as you can expect, it's always a bit lower. Mm. Top of the table, top of this one, Harrogate with 4-8-7. Love it. And then third in League 2, ahead of, sorry, just behind Cheltenham, was Southend on 4-5-1. So you've got a match there where both teams just knocking it around for fun. (laughs) Grimsby fourth with 4-40. So Ollie getting his side playing the way that we know he likes to. The last team one, always a fun one, long balls. Who attempted the most long balls? Top? Uh, in League Two? No, EFL. Uh, I reckon top was uh, Newport County. Accrington, 103. Nice. Ahead of Fleetwood with 102. Interesting, these are all pretty tight. You know, no team kind of has way more than, than others. Barrow and Salford, both 100. Sunderland, 99. That goes with the parking narrative. The only interesting thing I wanted to flag here, and Ali, you alluded to it, was the most in the championship, unsurprisingly, Wickham with 94. But only 18 of those were accurate. Only Sheffield Wednesday and Bristol Rovers played fewer accurate long balls. So Wickham, the most in the championship, but also the third fewest accurate ones in the whole thing. A couple of players' ones just to finish off. Firstly, shots, the players with the most shots. Well, I just mentioned one lad who had seven. Who was it? It was... Uh, Amari Patrick. Amari that Patrick. <laughs> that annoyingly was the one I wanted to flag up that should be a bit against the grain. Uh, Alfie May and Johnson Clark Harris, the other two, both 
with seven shots as well. Matt Gordon, um, Charlie Kirk, Sally Kai Kai, Andy Cook, and Danny Newton all firing off six. Finally, you'll be delighted to hear player passes. I think rather than doing this um, across all the divisions, I'm just going to rattle off the top ones. I mentioned Baptiste. He was top in uh, the in League Two with 70. But Terry Taylor wanted to look out for on loan from Wolves was second with 68, a ball-playing midfielder there for Ian Holloway in League One. Michael Nottingham at Blackpool with 81, ahead of Zeki Fryers with 80. And then it's Marvin Ekpotata on 77 and Ollie Turton on 76. So th- three of the top four... Blackpool defenders. Very interesting. Neil Critchley obviously wanting a, a pass-heavy style and they were behind for, for a lot of that game as well, which will have had an effect. Uh, what about in the championship? Yeah, no surprises here. Only one player hitting 100 attempted passes. It is, of course, Ethan Pinnock at Brentford. Matt Clark next up on 97. You have to go all the way down to seventh to find a player that isn't a defender. And of course, it is Max, Max Bird, Bird on 72. I knew it. Okay, before we go, I want to shout out a couple of individual performers uh, from League Two. Um, we mentioned Morecambe there, uh, and, and you said how many shots on target Cheltenham had. That means that Jake Turner in nets for Morecambe had a big game. He's on loan from Newcastle. A really good start to the season from him, albeit it was a wasteful performance from Williams and from Alfie May, who both had some good chances for Morecambe. But also at the top end of the pitch, Maka Linden did really well for them. His hold-up play for the winning goal was sensational. Phillips, the loanee uh, from Burnley, looks class, won and scored that penalty as well. But I'm always going to talk about Carlos Mendes Gomez because I've got a soft spot for him. And the bit of skill he did, the, the little sort of fake shot in order to set himself to finish and score that late, late winner. Uh, silky as hell, the sort of thing that you don't see very often in League Two and really caught my eye. Uh, going back to Forest Green, uh, I just want to point out it wasn't so much that he was sensational on the weekend, but they signed a player called Nicky Cadden uh, from Greenock Morton in Scotland, where last season, George, in all comps, Nicky Cadden, double-double. A double Ooh. figures goals, double figure for assists. That is someone like to keep those. your eye on. Uh, and the right wing back as well, Kane Wilson for Forest Green was excellent in, a, in the week that Hector Bellerin uh, invested and became interested Hector. in uh, Forest Green. It was their right back, Kane Wilson, who said, sorry, Hector, no space here. Uh, no space <laughs> for you. Uh, other winners were Leighton Orient, late winner against Oldham. Danny Johnson, their striker, who's now scored in five straight games. One to keep an eye on, that's for sure. Uh, and we also got that win over Grimsby. Elijah Adebayo, who we mentioned as being picked uh, by a lot of the stats and data guys to have a bit of a breakout season. The sort of striker who just gets on the end of a lot of good chances and scored that sort of two-yard tap-in to score the winner against Grimsby, who gave a, a league debut off the bench to 15-year-old Louis Boyd, became their youngest ever player. He, of course, scored in the EFL Trophy in midweek, but also had a, a centre-back called Idahen, an 18-year-old playing centre-back who, by all accounts, acquitted himself really well and looks like a, a talent. So Ian Holloway leaning on youth, that's for sure. You mentioned Terry Taylor as well, which is an amazing old-school name, uh, <laughs> who's another young player in on loan who, who seems to be the man spraying the passes around. The other scores in League Two, we're not going to go in-depth on these teams, but we will of course, in the coming weeks. Salford 2, Exeter 2, Barrow 1, Stevenage 1, Scunny 1, Newport 1, and 2 nil nils between Mansfield and Tranmere and Bradford and Cole U. Uh, it's a slightly longer Monday pod than it will normally be. That's because we could not wait to talk you through the opening weekend. If you've made it to this point, congratulations. We hope you've taken it all in. Uh, it, was a, it was a fascinating opening weekend in the EFL. Thank you to George for providing the stats uh, and make sure you join us later on in the week on Totally Football League Show Extra Time. 
subscribe to that feed uh, and also the NTT20 betting show as we look to build on a very positive first week with our selections. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll talk again soon. 